Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm your host, Anne McElvoy. We know that populism is fundamentally changing the way that politics works. Against a background of dissatisfaction with established parties, these movements present themselves as tides of political renewal, and the old school is feeling nervous. You've got people from the left and the right, and we should really watch this, who want to blow up the existing political system. We are going to be inviting in those who argue that democracy doesn't work. With their fear... Their populist deceit, their attacks against the European project. I don't think it's going too far to say there is a crisis. The question has so this week we're asking, is populism the problem or the fix? I'm joined on the line by Steve Hilton in New York and Yasha Monk in Boston. Steve was a radical reformer behind the renewal of Britain's Conservative Party in the early 2000s. He's now swapped Whitehall for California, and he also hosts a weekly show on Fox News, The Next Revolution. And his new book offers a prescription for America's ills. Positive populism to rebuild economic security, family and community. Welcome, Steve. Great to be with you. Very nice to be with you transatlantically as opposed to down the road in, in Westminster, where we, we spent many years covering politics together, did we not? Exactly. And it's going to be fun. And on the line from Boston is Yasha Monk, host of the weekly podcast The Good Fight and author of The People Versus Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. He teaches government at Harvard University. Great to have you on too, Yasha. Thank you. Let's see if we can start with you two agreeing or possibly not. What is populism, Yasha? So I'm I'm excited to see whether we agree on the definition of populism because we might be talking about slightly different phenomena. For me, the core of populism is somebody who says, you know what, uh, the only real reason why we have political problems right now is that the political elites are corrupt and self-serving, that they care more about outsiders than people like you and me. And this is the crucial part. The solution is that somebody who truly represents the people comes in, sweeps all of that aside, and they alone truly represent the people. So anybody who disagrees with a populist, by virtue of a disagreement, becomes an enemy of the people, a traitor, somebody whose rights and interests don't really have to be taken into account. So Steve, that doesn't sound like a very positive starting point in Yash's mind to what populism is, but is he sort of right about the basics? I think the issue with populism is that it's relatively undefined. It's a label that's been applied to various political phenomena in the last few years. I know it has a history to it, but I'm interested in really now and the future. There's something going on. People are fed up. They want change. They feel that for many years, doesn't matter who they voted for, they've had the same outcomes. And the outcomes have basically been great for the people at the top, not so great and sometimes disastrous for the people in the middle and the bottom. And my idea is to say, all right, this thing is going on, this phenomenon called populism. Let's make it positive. Let's try and define it. Let's harness that energy and turn it into real reform that benefits working people. 
Yasha, do you think that is possible? You started out by saying populism ends up with someone powerful in charge channeling what they see as the popular will. Steve thought we could do something positive with it. What do you reckon? Well, I think this political moment certainly has a lot of potential for meaningful change. There have been real problems. Uh, the rise of populism is not because people have suddenly gone crazy or there was something in the water in the year of 2016. It's because of long-standing structural problems in our politics and in our economy. And thinking in a serious way about mm -hmm. how to fix those things, I think absolutely is important and is probably favored by the fact that we now do face what I think is an existential crisis for, for liberal democracy. Where uh, I'm skeptical is that some of the figureheads uh, we've seen in the last few years are likely to actually make any kind of contribution to that. Steve? The tendency has been from the people who've been in power, who've pushed forward the agenda that I would argue has been advanced by left and right for many decades now. By the way, I've been part of that. The way I would characterize that is a sort of support for the big transformative changes of our time, really. Globalization, automation, the centralization of power, both in the economy, where you've seen big companies getting bigger and bigger and bigger and more global, actually. And, and the final element would be uncontrolled or perhaps a, a more uh, generous term would be liberal immigration. So you could describe that as an elitist agenda. Why? Because the people who've been basically either strongly in favor of that agenda and those forces or just OK with it and gone along with it, they are the people at the top. They've done really well out of it, the elite. And I think that those people see the response in terms of votes for populist agendas or leaders. And rather than questioning whether or not that agenda has actually been at fault, they immediately go to attacking the populists and the people who support them. Well, let's see if Yasha, do you accept that account, if you like, of the backstory of populism, or is Steve missing something, eliding anything? Um, I think we have a general agreement that populism has been caused by deep problems. I mean, when you look at the United States, from 1945 to 1960, the living standard of an average American doubled. From 1960 to 1985, it doubled again. And since 1985, it's been flat. Now, the reasons for that are, are, are multiple and complicated. Um, and I don't think that it's an elite conspiracy in any kind of very directed sense that people were sort of out there congratulating themselves on the extent to which they're keeping ordinary citizens poor. Um, but certainly the outcomes have been uh, unsatisfactory and people have a good reason to be angry about it. I, I slightly think... Can I just jump in and yeah, well, say I completely agree with you about the fact that it's not a conspiracy. I think that the way to characterize it is a kind of thoughtlessness. They, people have been casual um, and slow to realize the impacts of, of those policies. It certainly isn't a conspiracy. But I think where we might disagree is that it's this sort of either or, that there's some people who say, you know what, actually populism is a huge danger and there's really no rational reasons for why voters might be angry. And then the other people are saying, you know what, um, actually, there's a deep reason for populism and therefore we should embrace this development. I think there's a, there's, there's a third way of thinking about it, which is to recognize that there's deep structural problems, to understand that this is one of the things that explains the rise of populism, but also to see that in countries where populists have taken over, they have actually made those problems worse rather than better. And so that doesn't mean that we should go back to the status quo ante. It doesn't mean we should go back to how we're doing things five or 20 or 30 years ago. 
But it does mean that we both need to actually stand up to the cause of populism and to stand up to the populists. I'm going to just uh, throw a name in, into the argument. In a way, I'm surprised it hasn't really come up by now. And that's Donald Trump. We're talking in the aftermath of the midterms, various views of how they went. But it doesn't look like the Trump machine is going to stop rolling on very abruptly. Overall, to both of you, is Donald Trump the expression of a kind of populist will or is he a distorting figure who is simply out for his own self-interest and is leading the country the wrong way? Steve, you occasionally defend him, I think. I do. And and if just to Yash's point just now, just looking at the data, the last two years have seen quite a turnaround um, in the position of those people who have lost out from the big trends I mentioned, globalization, automation, and so on. The median incomes have risen. Unemployment is at historic lows. Um, It's been a good two years in terms of the core economic drivers, I think, of this popular sentiment. Of course, there's much further to go. And you lay that at Trump's door? Yeah, I think it's quite clear that... It's not the case, as you know, with governments coming on on a sort of tide of economics with which they have little to do other than perhaps not messing it up. You can't have it both ways because the Democrats, to get very immediately political here in America right now, the Democrats are, I think, trying to have it both ways because at the same time they're saying, particularly President Obama, going around in the midterm campaign saying, well, you know, effectively, I built that. That's my economy that, that that's doing so well. But at the same time, they've been deeply critical of the big changes that the Trump administration had have made to the Obama economic strategy. Of course, they can't both be true. However, I don't want to really dwell on that because there's a really important word that Yasha used earlier, which is structural. And I think that that's the big story here, which is that you've got some structural forces that, that call for really deep reform. And I would argue you're not seeing that from this administration here in America. Um, but sorry, example, I, I didn't quite get an answer from you, Steve, as to what you thought Trump was good for or at. Working Americans have benefited from his economic agenda. Right. Um, in terms of jobs, unemployment, incomes rising after many decades of stagnation. A big, big change that, that isn't sufficiently reported, which is the turnaround in terms of part-time working to full-time working. That's a huge factor in terms of household but incomes and living Could you make him sound standards. a bit like a, a kind of enlightened technocrat? And that doesn't <laughs> seem to quite sit with the... No, no, I, I, my, my real point is that screens. the Trump administration doesn't have the structural reform agenda that I would like to see. That's why I wrote my book. Honestly, I don't see it happening. I don't see the kind of revolutionary change that we need to the to the structures of how we organize government, how the economy is structured and so on, are just not being addressed. And that's why I think we need a much more radical reform agenda to make populism positive. I'm going around advocating for those deep changes precisely because I don't see them happening. You, Yash, have said that Trump is unmitigatingly, I think was the word, <laughs> disastrous for America. Still of that view? Um, look, I mean, I think there's there's a sort of tactical debate to have over the extent to which the, you know, obviously good state of the American economy at the moment is thanks to Donald Trump. I think when you look at a bunch of charts for the last 10 years, you, it certainly doesn't look like there was an inflection point in 2016. The economy had started to pick up well before that. You saw very robust growth of jobs before that. You were starting to see incomes pick up a little bit before that, and that simply continued for the last two years. I I think what's important, though, is to look at what impact populists tend to have on the economy in the long run. And what you see there is that when they come in, they can often uh, have a positive effect on the economy in the short run, because what they do is to 
bulldoze opposition to certain forms of reform. Often they spend uh, a lot of money on stimulus, actually. Um, and all of that works for a couple of years. But in the long run, they fail to modernize the economy. Because they run after votes, they tend to side with economic insiders over outsiders. And that's one of the ways in which they inhibit economic growth in the long run. And then thirdly, most importantly, because they sweep aside institutional checks on their power, they end up with a lot of corruption. They end up spending far too much money and getting into debt crises. And we're seeing that right now in a remarkable number of countries, in Venezuela, where you had a left-wing populist in power for a long time, but also in uh, countries like Turkey and Russia, uh, all of which now suffer from significant economic problems. And so I think the right way to judge uh, economic populism of the authoritarian kind is not after two or three years in office. It's what it does to a political system and an economic system once it's consolidated its power over the course of 10, 15 years. I think that, first of all, with Venezuela, I would argue that it's the left-wing part rather than the populist part that's at fault there. It's a sort of deeply socialist approach to running the economy and society, which is... Steve, may, may I say you, you sound trying. a little bit like, like, like a socialist now who says, you know, the, the, the problem in the Soviet Union wasn't the communist part, it was the authoritarian part. It's nothing to do with my set of, side of the idea. <laughs> no, I look, I, as I said at the beginning, my intent here is to say, how can we harness this movement, turn it away from negative and demagogic approaches and turn it into something positive, real reform. And for me, the interesting thing about populism is that it's not particularly ideological. It's defined by the interests that it's trying to advance. And I think that the interests that, that should be at the center of any kind of positive populist approach should be pro-worker, pro-family and pro-community. So there's, there's one possible definition of the way to go forward, Yasha. Which bit of those look good to you and which bits don't look so good? Well, I mean, I think when, when, when Steve speaks in, in, in abstract terms about who we should be fighting for, I entirely agree with him. And I would actually go, go, go one step further. Another term that we haven't yet used in this podcast is not just Donald Trump, but, but Brexit. And I think the slogan, Take Back Control, was a brilliant slogan that can actually apply to the economic realm, which is to say that ordinary citizens have a feeling that their political leaders aren't really fighting for them and that the nation state can't stand tall in the age of globalization. And figuring out ways in which the nation state can say, hey, we can make sure that people actually pay a fair share of tax. We can make sure that we don't hide the money abroad. We can make sure that we can still have real investment in communities, which gives people opportunities. is absolutely urgent. But isn't but there a bit of a tension in your position there, Yasha, if we're going to turn, as we've just turned a corner towards Brexit and what we make of it, that it does tend to be pro-globalizers or pro-Europeans, as we'd say in, in the British debate, who've downplayed the nation state and now suddenly think they might well, like but to I, revive I mean, it again. I don't think there's a contradiction in my, in, in my position. I agree that a lot of people have posited a choice between globalization and the nation state. And I think that choice has been hugely exaggerated. For example, I think it's perfectly possible for nation states to say, if uh, you want to be a citizen of our country and if you want to remain a citizen of our country, you have to pay tax here. Uh, if you spend 200 days a year in the Bahamas, that's wonderful, have fun. It doesn't uh, mean that you don't have to pay a reasonable amount of tax anywhere. Um, so I think there's actually a lot more ways in which the nation state can be open to trade, can be open to all of the economic activity, which generates incredible economic value. 
and yet ensure that citizens have a feeling that the politicians are standing up for them. We can sustain a real welfare state. We can sustain investments in communities and so on. And so I don't see any contradiction there. Uh, when we look to assess whether politicians who denigrate the basic rules and norms of liberal democracy and make huge outside promises, but then actually um, give, for example, tax cuts to uh, some of the richest people in the country are delivering on that, I think we have real disagreements. Is that right, Steve Hilton? And it sounds like a question directed not only but foremost to, to Donald Trump, that the norms of democracy then get eroded while you're kind of figuring out who he's serving or who he's not serving. Does that worry you at all? I think this this argument, you hear it all the time here, that about democratic norms is completely laughable. You've just seen the democratic norms and the and the checks and balances, whatever term you want to use, reassert themselves here in, here in the United States in the midterm elections. Where is this authoritarian coup that means that Donald Trump is overriding the Constitution and so on? It's quite the opposite. He's just lost control of the House. He's about to face a barrage of investigations and subpoenas that, that he's not going to enjoy very much. I can't think of a politician who's had who has had more accountability from a completely free press. People talk about Donald Trump muzzling the press. It doesn't feel very muzzled over here, and it certainly doesn't to him. So I just think this this idea that he's um, undermining democratic norms is completely preposterous. When you say muzzling the press, the fact that there is still a free press and broadcast is a jolly good thing. But we have actually seen a bearing down on some aspects of the press, haven't we? As we saw with the Acosta case and taking away an accreditation from someone who was critical in a press conference. Are you, are you joking? I don't know. You tell Where's me. Where's the muzzling of the press? That's a completely hysterical thing to say. Jim, first of all, the, the removal of one person's accreditation for their aggressive and hectoring behaviour, which was, by the way, privately condemned by other members of the press corps because they know that Jim Acosta of CNN is basically showboating and building his personal brand at the expense of other White House reporters who are denied time. So they can't stand him either. The idea that that is muzzling the press is laughable. There's plenty of other people there and indeed other people from CNN. So Yasha, Steve's strong pushback to me there is there's actually nothing to see here in terms of infraction of democratic norms or attacks on the press. It's, it's overcooked by oversensitive journalists. Perish the thought, Steve. <laughs> Yasha, your take? I think it's really simplistic to say because there's still a free press, because Donald Trump has not yet managed to destroy some of the very basic liberties that Americans have enjoyed for 250 years, it is ridiculous to worry that that's what he's trying to do. He has uh, once again deeply undercut the legitimacy of elections, has oh demanded for uh, a count of an election to be stopped, has been outraged that one of the Republican senatorial candidates hasn't sufficiently been willing to say that the election in her state was illegitimate. So you take all of those things together with the attacks on the press, which are daily. And yes, the United States is a long-standing democracy with a very independent and, and fierce media and a rich civil society. And it certainly takes longer than two years to destroy that rich tradition. <laughs> but uh, to say that that's not what Donald Trump is attempting to do because he has not yet succeeded in doing so, 
I think is a rather strange argument. And when you look, for example, at the extent to which he's already imposed control on the FBI, managed to get rid of its director, of its deputy director, of three of its most important agents, the way he has just installed a complete political lackey who, who has questionable legal standing to actually be the acting attorney general as the most important law enforcement official in the country, I think it's very clear in which direction he would take the country if we let him. I think that's just a perfect example of, of, of exactly what I think we should try and avoid and what I'm trying to, to get away from, which is this sort of contemptuous, sneering, uh, patronizing disregard for the, the exact same democratic norms that those who are opposed to President Trump claim they want to defend. If there's any uh, group that tried to undermine the legitimacy of elections and democratic outcomes, surely it's the Democrats who, in response to their defeat in 2016, immediately went to any other explanation than they just lost the election. It's the Russians, it's the interference and all the rest of it. It's just a joke to say that President Trump is on some mission to destroy American democracy. He's just been the victim of it. But these terms that are thrown around, like you know, appointing a lackey, it's just, when, when someone appoints someone to their cabinet, it's not surprising that they want someone who agrees with their political views. So I just think you can go through these examples this, one, one by one. I'm going to up this love fest because I think we've got quite deep into the weeds of the American argument. I do want to talk a bit about Europe and particularly about Brexit. Steve's book, he compares Brexit and Trump, and that's always an interesting, sometimes quite fraught comparison, but says two great protest votes of 2016. The difference is that what Trump is doing is working. So, Yasha, what's a way out of the Brexit mess that would solve or at least alleviate the problem of populism as you see it, or perhaps channel it more positively to take Steve's prism on these things. Well, well, for me, what's striking when you look at the British debate is that it is a kind of equivalent to the Donald Trump vote. I think that's right. I mean, there are people who are not populists who are in favor of Brexit. Um, so I think it's a slightly more complicated electoral coalition. But the actual driving forces of a Brexit vote was, I think, the same set of frustrations and the same set of beliefs in a simple solution that also propelled Donald Trump. And so I actually think that whichever way Brexit resolves, or even whether it's through a second referendum, which you know ends up with the United Kingdom staying in the European Union, you're going to get a surge of that kind of right-wing populist energy into other areas. Because I think in the end, three or four years ago, Brits cared at least as much about immigration, for example, and about demographic change as they did about trading rules. And as soon as this sort of consuming obsession with Brexit is put to rest in one way or another, I think you're going to see a lot of political energy rushing back into those areas. So I actually expect British... So just to nail you both to the, to the mast on this, second referendum, yes or no, Steve? No, the I People's think that, vote the, the, or whatever the, the, it's the, been marketed as at the we, moment. We, we, I think we've had the people's vote. I think that if you tried to revisit it, you'd just enrage people even more. And just the one further point I want to make is that there's, is there's a huge set of things that could be done to help address the reasons people voted for Brexit. They have nothing to do with a deal with the EU or anything else. Invest in infrastructure, in workforce training and development, in housing. All these things could be happening. But you've got a chancellor in Philip Hammond and a prime minister in Theresa May... They seem completely either uninterested or incapable of actually doing anything positive 
positive to help working people in Britain. That could change immediately, regardless of what kind of arrangement you have for Brexit. Steve says no. Yasha, second referendum, yes or no? Well, it seems to me that what people were told they're voting on two years ago is so different from the options on the table now that it does seem fair and reasonable to let them have a second set of decisions, especially since it doesn't look like that will actually be a coherent parliamentary majority. I would say, though, that uh, that's not going to resolve the deeper problems in British politics. And I think some form of populist energy is going to stay in the political system for a long time. And I think the British political landscape is going to transform much more radically in the months and years after Brexit is decided one way or another than people currently recognise. So closing thought from both of you, populism, a renewal of democracy or a threat to it? Yasha. Well, I think it can be both. It is quite clearly a threat to democracy, as we've seen in many countries around the world, including in Hungary and Poland, as we're starting to see in Italy and indeed in the United States. Um, But I do think it provides a, a huge opportunity for all of us as citizens and for political elites to recognize the extent to which things have gone wrong in the last decades and put forward actual structural reforms which show ordinary citizens that democracy can still deliver for them. Steve? Yeah, I completely agree with that. The the idea at the heart of positive populism is people power. Partly that's in terms of reforming governance, decentralizing power, but it's also in the economy, breaking up giant corporations so they're not so dominant and don't get the chance to exploit their workers in ways that we've seen. Supporting families so people have the independence to forge the lives they want. There's so much that can be done to put power in people's hands and give them economic security and opportunity. Would you break up tech companies? For sure. And in other sectors, you've seen sector after sector dominated by a handful of giant corporations that exploit their power to harm consumers and workers and the wider community. It's not just in tech, it's throughout the economy. And that is a huge part of decentralising power that doesn't get discussed enough. Yasha, Steve, thank you very much for joining us and, and doing battle heroically today. And it was a great pleasure. Yasha, great to discuss all this with you. It's incredibly important and it was fun. Thank you very much. And of course, we do want to hear what you think on this subject of all subjects. What are the positives of populism? You can write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. We love to hear from you. And if you haven't already, well, do subscribe. We hope to be popular with you. The first 12 issues are just $12 or £12 if you go to economist.com slash radio offer. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. <laughs>